This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It with Vanessa. Hello. And Joe. Hello. And this week we have a bit of a historic bite into it or historical. I mean, we're not claiming that this is a historic episode, but it's certainly a historical episode because we'll be looking back to cryptography, World War II style, and we'll be taking a trip back to 1993 to hear from a very keen uh, young thing about a, a wonderful new innovation called the World Wide Web. But first, what's making news, Vanessa? Well, there's uh, irrepressible Samsung news this week and we really need to cover that. So there's a lot of people out there very excited that Samsung have announced their Galaxy S8 and S8 Plus and uh, those will be available in Australia in the end of April. But people are excited about the almost almost non-existent bezel, so the edging of the phone around the glass, you know, that sort of, it's creeping right to the ends, so you feel like you get the most of your display. Um, People are pretty happy that, um, I don't know, that it looks like it's going to be more affordable than an iPhone. (laughs) I guess that's a pretty normal thing for people to be happy about. and, you know, there's a few pretty standard colours. There's a silvery one, a kind of metallic blue-grey one, a black one. I'm like this with cars too. It's like, what colours are available? <laughs> um, but uh, they've moved away from uh, the sort of uh, what they used to call capacitive buttons and now they're using software navigation buttons. So often, you know, the buttons that you actually press on things, it's a real point of failure on, on mobile phone technology. So they've said that, you know, look, we think we've got better solutions and we're going to handle this programmatically. So that gives developers for the platform a lot more options. Um, So that's going to be interesting to see how people do that. Apparently, they also really tried very hard to work on the fingerprint identification through the front screen, through the touch panel of the whole screen. That sounds difficult. They weren't able to succeed at this point. So they've got it on the back, which you're seeing come through a lot of different hardware uh, at the moment. Uh, they have copped a little bit of flack for um, having this security feature where you can unlock the phone by looking at it. So facial recognition technology. Uh, so people have been experimenting with this overseas and what they've found is that it can be fooled quite easily with a picture of the person. <laughs> who owned. So this is, you know... You'd think they would have worked this through. This is a little bit embarrassing for Samsung. Wink at your phone to unlock. Well, yeah, have a picture of of your your target to unlock their phone. Not very secure. Uh, So that's that's probably a feature that a lot of people who get this won't want to enable. Is Uh, this the first major Samsung release since the exploding phone of last year? It is. So it's a big comeback piece for them. They need to reclaim some ground and in the incredibly fragmented Android market, you know, Samsung have really dominated. They've done quite well. So they'll be wanting to, to keep, keep on with that, that strength. They are championing the fact that they have the highest level of biometric authentication, fingerprint and iris. So you can combine an iris scan thing. And this is separate to their facial recognition technology. And no one's been bagging the iris scan tech and the fact that combined with the fingerprint, that's quite a lot of security there. 
Um, still feels a bit movie-like to me, but they certainly look pretty. Seen far too many movies where they've um, taken someone's eyeball out in order to (laughs) unlock doors and things like that. Yeah, I guess it's still pretty gross. So that's a lot of effort to go to. Yeah. You know, I'm not Tom Cruise in an action film, so I should be okay. Yeah. That that scene where they're trying to iris scan with the little little bugs and things. Very, very imprinted in my memory. But, Me too. But Samsung 8, definitely worth a look when you when you um, get to the end of April if you've got a, a need for a new phone and you want a headphone jack in it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, you know, if you... I, I have noticed that they're uh, pumping their gear VR headset as well. So that's, uh, I think... If you are the pre-ordering kind, I've never been the pre-ordering kind, but uh, if you are one of those, then I think you can snag yourself a free headset. I don't know how much that's worth. So, I mean, it's essentially a piece of plastic that holds a phone. But Look, it sounds great. And in terms of specs, they are meeting all the the base requirements that you'd, you'd expect. You know, 64 gigabyte storage, 4 gig RAM, micro SD cards. Um, the camera is quite good quality. The rear is 12 megapixels dual pixel sensor, um, f-stop 1.7 aperture. Uh, the f- the front is you know noticeably less. Um, they've got fast charging, so three thousand ma sort of rating on that. So that's what you'd expect in you know a state of the art mobile phone at the moment. And and for less than an iPhone, you say that's well, let's marginally. It might be. I think it's creeping up into the ballpark, but I think okay. it's still less at the moment. It's not hard. No. That's true. I, pe- I know people who have cars that are worth less than. Well, it depends on the plans that you can get as well. You know, it depends which uh, which telcos do which deals with which platforms. So, it's worth crunching the numbers or just going to Whirlpool Forum where someone will have crunched the numbers for you. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a shout out to them. I understand that there is a bit of movement in the tech business sphere. Yes. So. Um, Look, I'm a big fan of GitHub in terms of code repositories and we've actually seen that they have kind of definitively won out over their competition in Microsoft's CodePlex. You could probably tell just by the vernacular that you hear around um, developer (laughs) workshops. I haven't heard it's on CodePlex. Lots of people haven't heard of CodePlex for quite a while now and it really, it just was their platform to try and handle version control of your, your programming. And, you know, that's that's a, a problem-solving tool that everyone who codes needs. They need something to, to hold their code and help them manage versions. And there's different private versions of it and public versions for open source code. And GitHub's really just dominated. So um, Microsoft have announced that they'll be shutting CodePlex down in December. But they're also going to be putting some tools out there to help people migrate their code off that. So ending with more of a whimper than a bang in this mm. case. Um is Google already stepped out of the space a little while back. Is, um, pardon my ignorance, but has GitHub stepped into other areas where version control is important? Because obviously version control is something that not only um, not only coders need, but all, all sorts of people who create documents or who have various sort of creative endeavours um, I, I'm not it's aware a, that, it's, that they're really stepping into GitHub at all. It's very it's, still much code focused. Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't, if they have, I haven't picked up on it, mm. and I haven't actually looked for that recently. I do think their brand is very we are the place for coders, mm-hmm. not we are the place for you to keep track of you know, document as, it's, management. It's and not a small market. So. Well, I think Google owns 
a lot of that version control yes. at the moment. Um, but you'd think natural competitor. But, yeah, you're right. It's it's a crowded market. You know, the Evernotes of the world want to have this as well. Mm. And I did notice that in uh, speaking of young upstarts toppling other businesses, that uh, Tesla is now worth more than Ford. Yes, this is amazing, isn't it? Actually, every time you open the Fin Review these days, there's car news and GM pulling out of Europe and, you know, trying to demonstrate to the market that they're not tied to the economic cycle. Really interesting stuff. So Tesla's now more valuable than Ford. And that's because uh, investors say it's no longer just a car company. Of course, it's, you know, it's an electricity technology company. Absolutely. So the surge really came after Tesla reported on the 2nd of April um, that it had delivered a record 25 or over 25,000 vehicles in the first quarter, a 69% increase over the last year. So production's ramped up. Um, They're not sure if Tesla can sustain the momentum. Uh, CEO Elon Musk has ambitious goals that have been known to strain the company's ability to deliver because he's got a real focus on quality. So he will actually step into the production line if he notices that there's problems and put a halt on that and and tinker and fix. Um, But that focus on quality has done the brand very well. Um, So their stock is performing relatively well. yeah, that's it's been defying um, financial analysts' expectations. So it's it's quite interesting to see the different perspective from you know the finance markets to you know just the the engineering uh, utopians who are. If you want to know what's going on, read the finance pages. Well, it's good to follow the money sometimes. Um, they have Tesla have eclipsed Peugeot, um, Fiat, Chrysler, Suzuki, Renault, Hyundai, and Nissan already. And now that they've surpassed Ford, they're you know they're really um, they're pushing on GM, Honda, and BMW's heels. So that's that's what we're looking at in terms of market capitalization. Big time. And when people talk aspirationally about you know the car of the future, they're like, oh, I hope I won't have to have a car, but if I do, I'm hoping it'll be a lot greener. Yep. You know, and that's exactly what Tesla speaks to. Mm. Mm. And it'll drive itself. It's a good news story. It's great. <laughs> Joining us on the line now is Craig Colley. He's an experienced TV producer who has written a few books about the Second World War, among other things, and his newest book focuses on the Central Bureau at Albert Park. It's called Code Breakers, Inside the Shadow World of Signals Intelligence in Australia's Two Bletchley Parks. Craig, thanks for... uh, Craig, yeah, thanks for being there. Hello there. Ah, thank you. It was touch and go for a moment, but thank you for being there. Yes, the line dropped out while I was waiting to come on. (laughs) Not a problem. (laughs) Uh, Now, your book, Codebreakers, Inside the Shadow World of Signals Intelligence in Australia's Two Bletchley Parks, is described as being about a unique group of men that were charged with deciphering Japanese signals in the Pacific in uh, World War II. What were these men's backgrounds and how did they come to be codebreakers for the Australian military? They're a mixed background. A lot of them were just uh, people who were in the military who drifted into uh, codebreaking. Some of them had backgrounds at university level in mathematics and in classics. Uh, One of them, so quite a few of them had spent some time in Japan and were fluent in the language. Um, But quite a lot of them were just people who had enlisted in the army at the beginning of the war and for one reason or another got into code breaking uh, and they stayed there if they they were good at it. 
What were the skills that you needed to be a code breaker in those days? It's hard to say. Um, it's just something you've either got a knack for or you haven't. So, uh, the, it's a sort of it's a business of of seeing patterns mostly, and just having a a mind for sort of seeing seeing patterns and sort of working through a mixture of numbers. So, Craig, when did you first stumble across the fact that we had this really interesting bunch of code breakers in Melbourne? In Melbourne and in uh, Brisbane, mm. there, were, there were two groups. Um, the publisher stumbled across it. He met some, uh, a couple of mathematicians who were trying to work out how they broke into the codes. Um, and that was the first he heard about the code breakers. And I'd written a couple of books for them already. They liked the way I write. They wanted to know if I was interested in doing a story on one of the code breaking units. It was only in uh, researching I found out there were the two of them. So, who were the leading figures in the Melbourne code-breaking unit? The, the Melbourne group, which was a, a Navy group, um, a fellow called Eric Nave, who was seconded for the Royal Navy, he had worked for the crowd that became Bletchley Park prior to the war, and he was working on Japanese naval signals um, and came back to Australia because he got a tropical disease. The war broke out, so he wanted to say, stay in Australia. Uh, and he formed the backbone of the Australian half of this group. The other half were an American naval group that were uh, evacuated from Corregidor in the Philippines as, Jap- as Japanese were driving down from the north. So one of the most fascinating parts of um, Eric's story in the book was his um, understanding of Japanese culture and and a bit of the Japanese perception of Americans. So there's there's this fantastic kind of um, revelation that he has where he's cracked a code and he thinks that something's imminent and he has the insight to, to say, you know what, I think this being so imminent, I think that this might go down on a Sunday. On Be- Sunday. Yeah, so, um, can you tell us a bit about that? And it was Sunday. Yeah. And, and that perception that Americans would be tired on a Sunday having partied raucously, presumably, on a Saturday night. Um, when when well, that he... Was, that was a Japanese perception. Yes. Uh, whether it's right or wrong doesn't matter. The Japanese certainly thought it was. Yeah. That's why they chose Saturday. Uh, Sunday, rather. So, he had that perception and, and that was, you know, and he's, he's cracked this code and he's passed on this message. Do you, do you feel like um, the the people that the local codebreakers were communicating with were taking the messages coming out of the Melbourne and the, and the Brisbane sites as seriously as, as they should have? Not early in the piece. It, uh, in the early days, it was thought to be a bit of an indulgence. Um, after Coral Sea, the Battle of Coral Sea, and particularly the Battle of Midway, where uh, codes were intercepted and cracked, were crucial to the victories, especially the victory of Midway, then they started to take it seriously and uh, used it extensively and took uh, note of what the code breakers were saying. Early in the piece, um, they weren't sure how they got the information, so the feeling was it was probably reliable or just a sort of passing fad. Mm. So in terms Late of... in the piece, it said that it shortened the, year, the war by two years. Maybe not two years, maybe it was. It certainly shortened the war. Right. Oh, that's... So I, there's been what was described as, and as you said, there was, there was two 
uh, units and what's been described as a rival group of codebreakers was set up by General MacArthur. Why was that? Um, because the, the the American who headed up the the naval group, the joint US Australian naval group, um, was he disliked the US Army and the British more than he disliked the Japanese. <laughs> uh, so he wasn't providing a great service to MacArthur. Uh, MacArthur wasn't the sort of person that would put up with poor service and with insufficient respect. Uh, so he set up his own unit, or he had his people set up a unit with some of the army people that had, uh, that had been uh, evacuated from Manila. Uh, set it up with the Australians, with the Australian Army and the RAAF. They worked together quite well in the joint Australian-US group, naval group. There was a fair bit of tension between the Australians and the Americans, largely because of the two people at the top. But at the, um, in the the Army Air Force one, they worked together well. Uh, it was modelled on Bletchley Park. It grew after a slow beginning. The Navy one sort of it, it had its its uh, moment in the sun with Midway and Coral Sea, but eventually sort of fizzled out a bit. So the Bletchley Park that this is modelled on is obviously very famous. You know, movies have been made. People are quite aware right. of this. Um, why do you think it is that? We haven't heard, well, at least I haven't heard, this story being told before of Australia's participation. It, it reminded me a little bit of The Dish, actually, and, and our role in kind of yes. the first moon landing. Yes, that's not a bad comparison. I think because it's just in sort of little bits of personal memory. For 30 years, no one talked about it because of the Crimes Act. And it was only after the... Um, the court case with Peter Wright and Spycatcher about 30 years later when it became clear that uh, you couldn't legally stop people talking, that they started talking. But then they were getting older, their memories weren't so good. Uh, they still were wary about talking to people, so it just didn't get out because no one was shooting his mouth off. Americans were a bit different. There's better known what they were doing um, in the war because they're more likely to tell everyone. Not <laughs> Did you get a sense of what the day-to-day work was like? I mean, were these men listening to hours of of radio communication? Were they working off transcripts? What was what what was the actual work? There are two groups in general. One group were doing just that. They were listening to and recording coded messages endlessly in shifts. They were often out in the field. They were at the receiving stations, at the at the offices, if you like, in in Melbourne and in Brisbane were people just sort of crunching through tedious collections of numbers trying to make some sense and trying to work out the code in them. Uh, So for the code breakers themselves it required a great deal of patience because it was some tedious repetitive work that occasionally bore fruit and particularly when you saw the codes that they had cracked being used to read messages that had been coded and then seeing it applied in a battle like Midway, that was a reason to feel that it was all, all the tedium was worth it. Mm. So when we've seen, you know, media representations of code cracking in the past and, and looked at how the Enigma code was broken, um, you had a lot of uh, very skilled mathematicians, you know, applying processes to cracking things, but you also had um, often a lot of women doing some grunt work on, on the numbers and things. Was there a similar model here? Like, were there any, uh, 
you know, women involved or were there any sort of people doing grunt work and sort of entering vast amounts of data uh, and crunching that? Increasingly, in you know, intercepting the signals and recording them, women were used, in part because men were more likely to be out uh, fighting in the war. Right. Uh, but also, they were said to be sort of better at that sort of repetitive routine work. <laughs> Supposedly, yeah, yeah. was the argument. In the, conversely, in the code breaking itself, first of all, you, crack, you break into the code, work out what the code values are, then you apply them to messages when they come in. With the code breaking, I have found only one woman, and that was in the Army Air Force one in Brisbane. As far as I can work out, there were no code breakers, weren't female code breakers, in the um, naval one in Melbourne. Now, there's no reason to imagine that women would be any less able to break into codes than men. So that policy, if it was a policy or that practice, was probably losing 50% of the potential gifted code breakers. Well, sure, and yeah. It's a gift, and you can't really tell until you see them at work whether they've got the knack. Yeah, yeah, right. Bit of a sign of the times there. It is, regrettably, but fortunately we won the war. <laughs> so that's that's something that's quite interesting about reading your book is that um, I've only gotten a bit of the way through it, but for a book where you actually know the outcome, it's it's got a real cracking pace to it and you really bring the personalities to life. Did you have a favourite character that emerged during your research? Um, I found Nick Sanford interesting as a person uh, he's the guy, and you probably haven't got much of him, he was sort of fairly charismatic guy who headed up the Australian contingent in the Army Air Force in MacArthur's group um, called Central Bureau. Uh, probably Eric Nave is the, certainly the sort of best code breaker um, and I suppose in some ways major character. And his battle with the American Rudy Fabian is an interesting uh, piece of, uh, if you like, office politics. Mm. Uh, so they're the two main characters. Fabian himself is interesting, uh, an incurable military politician, but probably in his rivalry with Nave, who was certainly a highly skilled code breaker, he's probably a better administrator, and that's what he was doing. I think um, some, would have been. some of your insights into the protocols around um, code breaking and, and having people in a position where they know some things that haven't been distributed maybe through the network was quite interesting. Um, how did you get to learn about what some of those protocols were? You just dig around and talk to people. There's so bits and pieces, if you pursue hard enough through the internet in sort of remote areas, there was, for instance, a publication from the U.S. Naval Cryptologic Veterans Association <laughs> in Pensacola, Florida, who published a sort of self-published thing of memoirs of the Americans who were in Corregidor and then Melbourne, uh, and they were sort of fairly personal descriptions, but fairly detailed. Uh, something like that, it doesn't matter if it's well written or not, the story is there and you can use that and get personal detail. Mm. A lot of the more official um, stuff you read just talks about the talks in military talk and it's about the process not about the people. Yeah, so to, so to bring that situation... To a story about people, to tell a yarn. Yeah, <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, you definitely did that. Um, to bring that to life a bit more, I guess there was this exciting moment where um, some code breakers are on a submarine and they know that they're going to an area surrounded by enemies and they're not allowed to share this information because the protocols around that are that, you know, this, this information hasn't been spread yet. And so there they are, you know, sailing into disaster. Yep, and deciding that they were required that the rules required them not to tell the skipper because he didn't have clearance to be told uh, that they were heading into uh, treacherous uh, an waters area that had Japanese battleships uh, looking for them. Amazing! Uh, so and they, only, they only just got away. Yes, you or I wouldn't do that. But, <laughs> <laughs> no. I <hope> not. <laughs> but so I guess I imagine you wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> so with um, with the benefit of hindsight, when you're interviewing people and, and putting this book together. Did you have people weighing in on on uh, how they wished things might have been different? No, there's there's very few of the major codebreakers are still alive. Mm. So a lot of it has come from talking to people that knew them, juniors there, and to um, what this, what I could get out of the remote corners of the internet. Mm. What was the uh, legacy of all this? Did did these units continue past the war? Uh, the, the legacy of the Australian units were uh, the outfit called DSD, Defence Signals uh, Directorate, which we didn't even know about till the 80s. And <laughs> the so they had, it had a long-lasting impact, in fact. Oh, yes, yep. They, <laughs> a lot of the people who were in it went back to civilian life, but a number of them stayed in the signals intelligence area. Um, within the military uh, but their well their existence was barely known during the war so it wasn't hard to set up a clandestine unit uh, which was defense signals uh, directorate after the war and as i say that was unknown to anyone except uh, a few people within the military until it was came out in the open in the 80s so for what's that uh, nearly 40 years it went unknown asio uh, which is uh, sort of lesser spring-off of that group uh, was better known. Uh, but they, they're more wider intelligence. They're not just signals intelligence. Craig, thank you. Craig Colley's book, Code Breakers, is uh, out now, is it, Craig? That's right, yes. came out last week. It, it certainly, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to reading it. Vanessa certainly seems like she's enjoying reading it. And so. I know that my father will enjoy reading it, having worked in um, in radio with the RAF. Oh, well, that's where the market, the principal market is here. Well. Bring <laughs> <laughs> memories back for him. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, look, it's a, it looks like a cracking read. It's out through Alan and Unwin. And thanks so much for your time tonight, Craig. That's a pleasure. We have some heartwarming news Vanessa? It certainly is. Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, has won what's called Computing's Nobel Prize. It is actually the Turing Prize and it comes with a million dollars of gratitude. Yeah, it's um, it's annually uh, presented by the Association for Computing Machinery, the ACM, to an individual who has made major contributions of lasting importance to computing, which is you know quite a, a crowded field, really. Um, we're still they're still working their way through the basics, and they've just gotten around to the World Wide Web. <laughs> it must have taken them a while because yes, you'd think of most of the major innovations that have come through 
uh, Tim Berners-Lee's contribution would have been one of the major ones. Mm, so he actually pioneered the web in 1989. It's hard to believe that it's that long ago while working at CERN and... Um, that's the organisation, uh, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. And it's really the, the heart of particle physics research in the world. Um, and he invented it as a way to allow scientists across the world to share information. He created the naming schemes, so URLs, how we navigate our way around. He created a communications protocol, so the HTTP, the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, and a language for web pages, so HTML or um, Hypertext Markup Language. Um, he also coded the first browser u using open source. So he's no slouch, Tim. He, he's really worked hard for this million dollars, um, way down the line. I remember a boss of mine once saying that the, the wonderful thing about working on the internet, unlike working on uh, the t on television or radio or any of the other mediums, you know, the printing, is that you can talk to the people who made it, who invented it still. They're still around, they're still doing things and they're, they're still being active. And, and they're still talking about the intent of it, which I think is mm. really interesting. Uh, what's what's great is that um, Tim didn't invent the internet as a whole and people sometimes get a bit confused. Like, what, what does this distinction between the World Wide Web mean? So the internet existed as a network concept um, coming out of DARPAnet, so that, like the American Defence Research Centre. And they created the protocol of transmission control protocol, internet protocol, which really is the way we connect and, and move between things. But the World Wide Web sat on top of that and made it presentable. You can think about it as a presentation layer even and just made it so much easier for everyone to get in there and communicate on. It was such a significant um, invention. It's interesting. We, we have a snippet of an interview with Tim Berners-Lee by a program called Geek of the Week and um, they... In this interview, uh, it's from 1993. So it's just when the World Wide Web is moving beyond what was its intended purpose into a sort of the very beginnings of it being a mass consumption platform. Um, so, yeah, it's very lovely because the, the first question, as you'll hear, is quite innocent. Um, welcome to Geek of the Week, Tim. Thanks. Uh, it's uh, great to be a geek. And uh, I, we all wish we could be, right? <laughs> um, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about the World Wide Web. What is it? And what's it do? Okay. I'll tell you two things. I'll tell you uh, what it is at the moment and what it originally was supposed to be when it started off uh, two or three years ago. The World Wide Web initially was designed to be a collaborative system. It was supposed to be collaborative at the hypertext system to allow a group of people to work together without having to be in the same office. In fact, I started originally getting interested in hypertext when I arrived at CERN and I found that the place full of creative people was quite a, quite a, meb, quite a mess, quite a web of, of uh, people, programs, people who had written programs, who used programs, program used programs, all sorts of relationships there. And when I was first there for six months, uh, 13 years ago, I just had six months to find out about all this, all these relationships, so I wrote a little program to do that. And later I realized that if other people could access the same information, this would save me telling everybody about it. So the idea was that it should be what has now been coined, been termed computer supportive cooperative work, CSCW. And that was the original idea. And then when we produced it, the first thing which we produced for general consumption was a browser which would allow you to look at this information 
And as a result, it has become an information system which has a lot of people browsing and very few people disseminating information. So now it's, it is, as you described it, a, a system, an information system, resource discovery system, which allows a lot of people to get the information, but only a few people to produce it, a little bit more like a radio station. So we still plan for it to become a collaborative system. And what does the browser look like? Is, do you have to be running on a Sun, or does this work on, on many different um, platforms? Well, originally when we started, the problem was we had a prototype on the, on the next step, which was fun to build and very quick to build. Uh, but now, on pretty much any platform, you have it on, on Sun, for example, on X, you have maybe five browsers now. XMosaic is the most popular one, which a lot of people have heard of. That comes from the University of Illinois? That's from NCSA, uh, the same people that produced NCSA Telnet. Uh, they have a very strong team producing not only Mosaic for X, but also they're coming up with the same thing for PC with Windows and the same thing for the Mac. And meanwhile, on the Mac at CERN, there's a fairly straightforward, simple browser available for the Mac from CERN, and there's a, something called Cello, which is available from the Legal Information Institute at Cornell, who have produced that for Windows. So Windows, Mac, and X have got graphic user interfaces. There are also a couple of browsers which are very much, uh, much used, in fact, although they're not so exciting. There's the very plain line mode browser, which you can use from a hard copy teletype, which is we distribute from CERN. And there is a browser called Lynx, which comes from University of Kansas, Lou Montulli produced that, and that uses a full-screen VT100 emulation. These are, in fact, pretty useful because we're interested in getting to everybody. We're getting interested in getting to everybody who's got a, just a VT100 or whatever terminal they have. So what kind of information do you get out of this? So that is a 1993 explanation of the World Wide Web from its inventor, uh, Tim Berners-Lee. It's... It, it, I thought it was beautiful. I mean, that there's question. so much vintage technology just mentioned there. <laughs> I'm in a haze of of um, just yeah, indulging in Sun Microsystems and gosh, teletype browsers. I didn't even know those existed. It was I had to use Lynx for quite some time in the early nineties. Mm. About ninety five, I think I was still using it. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. I I remember. Um, I think one of my first uh, encounters with an early. Wit- browser was uh, after Internet Explorer had already come out and I had designed my first web page which dutifully had coloured frames and blinking text and all of the abominations of Internet Explorer and I was <laughs> completely shocked. I was completely shocked to see how it rendered on a on, on a, an earlier browser. Um, but it was... Uh, it, it's interesting. So um, recently uh, Tim Berners-Lee has released an open letter... Um, yeah. outlining sort of some of his fears for what has happened to the web in the last 28 years. It's great to see him using this this renewed um, uh, concentration of attention on him to draw attention to things he's concerned about. So he's attacked any UK plans to weaken encryption and um, promised to battle any moves by the Trump administration to weaken net neutrality. So that's... Fantastic. He said that um, moves to undermine encryption would be a bad idea and represent a massive security breach. Um, and he's got the financial services 
sector on side as well. Uh, there seems to be a bit of a gap between people who know a lot about computing and know a lot about finance and, and how uh, finance is using networks to move information around these days and uh, and governments and regulatory bodies in terms of, uh, of being concerned about encryption, um, often in the names of national security. So he's, he's called that out. Um, net neutrality has also been something that's on and off the agenda, uh, particularly in the States, for a long time now. And that's the concept that uh, whether bandwidth is equal in cost to move data around. And if that's not equal, that it really uh, favours big players. It favours the people who can afford to subsidise moving data across and therefore um, kind of eke out more audience by being cheaper. So th that's a situation we probably wouldn't want to see mm. um, because it uh, it means that voices on web pages are become unequal and you end up with a, a free web and an expensive web and yeah. It's uh, it was interesting. Uh, Wired distilled the open letter into by saying that uh, Tim Berners Lee was saying that there are three big threats to the World Wide Web: mm. uh, sharing personal data, misinformation, and political advertising. Which, actually, if you're going to talk about the three things that define your experience of the World Wide Web right now, are uh, those are probably the, the the three. I mean, it is still an amazing resource, and people are still doing amazing things. But um, and it's interesting that you, t you know where he was talking there about how uh, the internet had become essentially a, pla a, a, a publishing platform where a few people consume and a lot of people, a few people create and a lot of people consume. That's less, it's less of the case now with social media. I think, think the production consumption line I in the last 10 years has definitely tipped. I think he'd be happy with the amount of collaboration. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so, um, but at the same time to facilitate this, we have created we have these more. monsters of, mm. of personal development. Databases that so so I heard this acronym I'd never heard before today, which was FANG, and maybe I'm naive <laughs> for not hearing it, but you know it, it stands for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, mm. and that you know thinking of them as the the uh, the bunch of conglomerates who together may hold most Americans' data, and I just thought, wow, that is Netflix yeah. surprises me because I can understand a Amazon because you. Uh, you buy and there's reviews and, and you can watch your, your browsing. I guess no, Netflix seems to me... Understanding people's media consumption has always been of interest to people. Mm. So, you know, usually it was librarians defending people's privacy in that space and making sure that your borrowing records were protected. I guess there's something to be said for what you consume on Netflix. I'm not sure what they'll make of, you know, when you when you go back and watch The West Wing when an unfriendly uh, <laughs> presidency is installed. <laughs> I was interested to see uh, last year the Netflix data that was released uh, showing uh, the tipping point. Well, they saw as the tipping point after you, if you've, they've got you through a couple of episodes, then you're likely to watch the rest of the series and those sorts of data. I, I, I guess um, it doesn't seem as scary to me to have my... My, my viewing habits like that analysed. Yeah. But, but, I mean, who knows? Maybe it is, you know, I'm inadvertently revealing deep personal <laughs> secrets to to Netflix. All we can encourage is for people to share accounts and, and watch lots of uh, confusing <laughs> things. <laughs>
<laughs> Being in a family helps with that. It certainly does. <laughs> you and Peppa Pig. Exactly. Yeah, yeah very subversive. Uh, so congratulations, Tim Berners-Lee. Um, and may you continue to be as vocal an advocate as you have been for the last 28 years. There is quite a bit going on. So let's hear about some of what that is, Vanessa. Well, one thing I'm really excited to see out is that there is the search for the next tech girl superhero on and you can register now for that. Now, if you are interested in technology... um, This is a competition, which is a 12-week STEM entrepreneurship program for girls aged 7 to 17 years old. And what they do is they set you up with a whole lot of learning resources online and you're meant to form teams of three to five girls and you register with a coach who can be a parent or a teacher and then you identify a problem in your local community to try and solve. Your team then develops social, business and technical skills through the resources with the website to build an app, prototype and pitch it. So for the 12 weeks of the competition, each team is mentored by a female tech industry professional and it's such an amazing thing because the organisation hooks you up with these people. So just by getting organised and and having a few interested girls and um, a coach they'll put all the resources in your hands. The competition kicks off on the 1st of May and concludes on the 29th of July. So probably be time to start thinking about the young people in your lives and who might want to get involved with this. Each team that submits an entry will be judged to become the state and national Australian winners. The deadline for registration is 5pm Friday the 14th of April. So you've got a little bit of time to get organised. And to find out more... You want to go to www.technovationchallengeapac.org, but we'll try and tweet out that link. Uh, Closing a little earlier uh, this Friday uh, is registration for the Data Science Melbourne 2017 Melbourne Datathon. They have a great data set, two hack days, lots of pizza promised, uh, and $5,000 and internships to be won. It runs from the 13th of April to the 5th of May. Like I said, registrations close this Friday. Uh, datasciencemelbourne.com slash datathon is where you need to go. Once again, we'll try and tweet that. Also closing this Friday, um, or on this Friday, is a workshop, Vive with Acme XVR workshop is on this Friday evening. Uh, Acme and, which is the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and HTC Vive are hosting a workshop for developers who are interested in virtual reality, augmented reality, and, okay, it says VR, AR, and MR. I'm not aware of MR. What's MR? It's Mr. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, who are interested in virtual reality, augmented reality and Mr. to meet like-minded people and show off their work. Their first workshop in 2017 will feature Chris Murphy, Australian evangelist for Unreal Engine, who will be speaking on the latest uh, UE4 VR developments. They'll also be joined by... I'm going to murder this name, Emre Kandaniz, uh, the director for Opaque Space, uh, developer of consumer and simulation virtual reality experiences. And Opaque Space is developing the VR game Earthlight and collaborating with NASA 
to develop VR training tools. Fantastic. I've done a quick Google of MR and the reason you didn't get it is because we're used to hearing it being called a hybrid reality. So they're now using the expression mixed reality, which might be a new... A, a newer Mixed expression? reality. Emerging of real and virtual worlds to produce new environments and visualisations where physical and digital objects coexist and interact in real time. I'm not sure how that's different from augmented. Well, maybe it's two-way rather than... Yeah, yeah. Rather than plonking something over mm. reality, there is something in reality that is then digitally Interactive connected. and... Yeah. yeah. Augmented can be. Anyhow, interesting. I think maybe. there's some nuance... Yeah. Someone needed. We need to sign up. Someone needed a grant. We need I an interview. We need an interview over that. <laughs> okay. the, the MR interview. If you are an MR expert, get in touch with Bite Into It. You can tweet us uh, at uh, Bite Into It, aren't we? We're at Bite Into It. Yeah. That's correct. Yes, yeah. I thought that. Bite with a Y. Bite with a Y. That's yeah. that's the only thing that's going to get Why? you there. Why? Because. Yeah. We've been exploring the Melbourne Knowledge Week program and some highlights are AI and the future of work with Tim Dunlop, Dr. Veronica Sheen and Alexa Prendadesh. Oh, sorry, I'm saying your name wrong, Alexa. We had you in the other week and I'm still saying your name wrong. Pendashta, to discuss how automation affects employment. Uh, that's on Friday the 5th of May from 6 to 7.30pm. It's free, but booking is required. And this is the great thing about so many Melbourne Knowledge Week events. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight. Uh, thanks to Craig Colley for talking to us down the line about his book, Code Breakers. We've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. You can find the podcast via triplerorg slash bite into it with a Y. Uh, we post links on the episode notes for each week there and plus track the songs we play. So that is worth checking out. Once again, yes, follow us on Twitter. Uh, up next is the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. So stick around for that. We'll talk to you soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.